This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is June 15th, 2023. I'm Scott Lundbom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, BC might be running out of electricity. We have federal by-elections coming up and federal resignations and refusals to resign. Let's get into it. Support the show at patreon.com slash politicos. Here in BC, another quiet-ish week. I think this summer might actually be pretty quiet provincially. Um, I'm going to say that to try to jinx it so that we have news. <laughs> but a couple small press releases this week, but just one interesting one came out today as the province and BC Hydro have announced they are going to need to be seeking new sources of electricity as updated numbers and forecasts say that we may actually need more electricity as soon as 2028, a mere five years from now. So we we better get building some yeah, dams. Yeah, the way these projects work and just like going through the uh, approvals and everything, it is, uh, that's a pretty short timeline to get anything built, particularly a sizable build out of the electrical grid. Uh, so therefore, it has a need for about 3,000 gigawatt hours per year of uh New generating capacity, which uh, is kind of like half a site C, roughly. It's a lot. Yeah, they say it would power 270,000 homes. So uh, a mid-sized city, like what? what's that in Metro Van? Coquitlam's like 150. It's like Burnaby's, Burnaby, wouldn't it be, roughly? Or? Think, yeah, Burnaby's like 300,000, something like that. I'm going to be called out in the comments somewhere, maybe. But yeah, it needs to power a Burnaby in the next five years. Uh, the way they're going to try and kickstart this is through a $140 million injection to the BC Indigenous Clean Energy Initiative Fund. This supports Indigenous-led power projects, allowing First Nations to essentially get them going on their own territories, uh, advancing self-determination, creating economic opportunities, and also electricity for everyone. So it's kind of a win-win situation. Uh, and also, I think, helps accelerate some of the projects if you have First Nations buy-in from day one, because you're just giving them money to build dams that will then fund their nation. And a lot of these are like run-of-the-river projects, not like full dams. Yeah, there's not, I don't think we're looking at a plan to build a Site C in the next, fi- a, a Site D. Yeah, because even if you years. could... Um... Even if the, there were no uh, local indigenous uh, issue that you had full buying, I think just doing the environmental assessment would take up most of that time for a dam that size. Yeah. Uh, this is the first call for power in 15 years. They are targeting larger utility scale projects. They want to focus on uh, renewable electricity, including wind and solar. Um, they're prioritizing speed of delivery uh, oversight to protect ratepayers. <laughs> I guess they don't want another Site C boondoggle. And anything anything that can get done really quick, although the official call, it sounds like, won't be out until next year, 2024, which 
is then only four years to start these. I, I'm guessing they don't need them all going right by 2028. Yeah. Hopefully. But also, in retrospect, isn't it good we have Site C underway? Because can you imagine if we were down an additional like 5,000 gigawatts beyond that and have to scramble to find 8,000 worth of uh, annual generating capacity? Yeah. Like, the and it's really interesting in here, right? Because the numbers I'd heard in the past were that we're actually pretty good in terms of outlook. And we've seen some people argue that Site C was unnecessary based on some of BC Hydro's own numbers. But it looks like this updated set of assumptions. I haven't seen where they pull these numbers in. Um, and I'm not an expert in this. Although in the quick facts section of the press release, they target that uh, we're up to 18% ZEV sales in the province in 2022. We're also getting a large number or an increasing number of light duty electric vehicles and uh, 200,000 heat pumps have been installed, which is about 10% of homes are on electric heat pumps now. So yeah, and also the programs we're doing are working, which is good, but that means increased electrical demand. Yeah, and you also have places where like people in like old apartments that don't have AC or anything are like buying like small kind of portable AC units and whatnot, just as things are getting hotter. And yeah, so you have like a lot of those little things that add up. Uh, they also cite in their report that with more people working from home, we're seeing higher electrical usage. In addition to the other things I mentioned, increase in industrial development and population growth. So they're looking at a lot of different things. You know, increasing the amount of generation. They're also going to be ramping up energy efficiency activities. Uh, it says they're going to pursue voluntary time varying rates to help manage system capacity, although it sounds like we're still not at a big concern because dams are really easy to just store reserve energy in a reservoir, uh, as well as. Uh, yeah, but like it's, I mean, I think the thinking there is that uh, it's about the peak power. You want to shave off. The peak rather than needing to bring up the base on that case. Yeah. Because like so, peak, peak electricity generation is like expensive and um, yeah, uh, pretty resource intensive to run. Yeah. So overall, pretty interesting development in the province. It'll be interesting to see how this rolls out. I know some of the attempts to get uh, small power projects, run of the river stuff going in the past has been rather controversial. I'm curious if this focus on indigenous clean energy can really get past some of the challenges they faced in the past. Well, um, a lot of those right of the rivers were also led. Like, this is not a new development on that front. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I'm not convinced that that's going to necessarily like, get rid of all of the opposition. And, you know, we have seen time and time again that like when environmentalists have to choose between environmentalism and support indigenous nations economic development they usually choose the former and i don't expect this to be any different when it comes to uh building up more hydropower in the province and hey i'm really curious to see what kind of wind and solar and other projects because it doesn't seem like this is focused purely on hydro even though that's the obvious uh source to go to in this province but you know Maybe there'll be a giant solar farm in a Soyuz or a wind farm going up in uh, Tumblr Ridge. I think there's one, there's one being built in Tumblr Ridge already. It's well, there you go. Completed. That's where I got it from. <laughs> a second one. <laughs> uh, and just 
FYI, the uh, population of Burnaby, toward which be, is about 260,000. So we're right on. So no injury emails on that one. All right. We're always right on with our fact checking here. Let's jump to federal politics then. Lots of stuff happening, lots of kind of smaller stories. We're going to start with something we haven't talked about yet. There are three by-elections coming up on Monday, June 19th. There have been actually various by-elections over the time we've recorded this podcast. And a lot of the time we don't talk about them because federal by-elections are often kind of boring. Even provincial by-elections can be pretty boring like the few we previewed that are happening right now in BC. You mean the one that's like advanced voting st- starts tomorrow for and like, it, the, and like nobody i've talked to in my writing even really cares that much about the, it because the it's safest a- ndp writing or the like third safest ndp writing are up for votes i think it's only this yeah might be the, the second safe federally though we have three writings two follow resignations of long-standing conservatives and the other from the death of a former liberal cabinet minister in Ontario, Oxford saw Conservative MP Dave McKenzie, whose name I didn't know, have never heard of, I swear, uh, but man has been was an MP for 18 years before he it resigned. It is also like an aggressively Canadian name. Yeah, sure. Um, he, despite holding that seat for quite a while, Main Street has a poll out today for each of these that we'll talk about. Uh, they find it's actually a tight race between the liberals and conservatives who, when you take out all the undecided uh, and when you take out all the undecided voters and just look at the likely ones, you get a 38% tie for the liberals and conservatives, NDP at 8%, People, People's Party at 6%, Greens at 4%, and wildly 7% say they're voting for another party. And when I look at the full list of who's running, the Christian Heritage Party is running a candidate and John the Engineer Termel is running. This is a man who has run in 106 elections. Yeah, one of the uh, perennial candidates. He lost 105 times. The time he didn't lose, the by-election was preempted by a general election. He is the Guinness World Record holder for most uh, elections contested and lost. Huh. He describes himself as a libertarian Socred. Anyway, <laughs> he's not going to win again. Yeah. Um, I, you know, my money would be on the conservatives holding this seat i don't trust by election polling that much but it'll be interesting if this is as tight as main street thinks it is it's probably the most interesting of these three in manitoba are other two races uh the there's rural four overall there's you're four. missing mark draw nose uh seat after he resigned notre dame did cross oh, westmount they didn't pull that one ah that's what. Top, top of the page on yeah. uh, the election scandal one. Yes. Well, let's go there first. The Quebec seat of Notre Dame de Grasse Westmont. Uh, it has, I mean, I feel like that's a pretty safe liberal seat. Yeah, Mark Arnaud won it with uh, 53% in the last election and 50 sits in the election before that. And, you know. Maybe the uh, candidate for the Liberals not being an astronaut will knock like one or two points off that at most. So it's probably pretty safe. Uh, Outside the major parties, you have the Rhinoceros Party running a candidate as well as Christian Heritage, the Centrist Party of Canada, and an independent Felix Vincent Ardia. In Manitoba, two more ridings. Portage Lisgar is uh, open following the reservation 
following the resignation of Conservative MP Candace Bergen. The Conservatives have been putting a lot of attention onto this one because uh, Maxime Bernier is running for the People's Party there. Uh, According to Main Street, the Conservatives are still well-favored with 43% there to the People's Party getting 27%, Liberals at a mere 15%, NDP 10 and Greens at 4%. Uh, 2% say they're voting for another party, but there are no other parties running in this one. This is kind of an all-in for Maxime Bernier. He's you know, famously from Quebec, but this was one of the seats I think they did the best in the last federal election, possibly their best performance. Yeah, so last federal election, they got... 22 percent of the vote they were the second place party in the riding after uh the conservatives who got uh 52 percent and you know so yeah like th- this is a, a riding that is like 70 percent plus right of center and the conservatives normally absolutely clean house there and even when you have a splinter you you still get not just a plurality but majority of the uh riding voting conservative normally so it's almost certainly going to be a hold, but the interesting thing is how well are they, as the People's Party going to do, and you know, if they post gains there compared to last time, what does that mean? Yeah, and I think that's one of the things the Conservatives are really watching out for, is they want to crush the People's Party in this constituency, because if it looks like they have signs of life there, that means Pierre Polyev needs to be fighting battles in Alberta and Saskatchewan and Manitoba when he would rather be fighting them in, in Ontario, Quebec, BC, and Atlantic Canada, everywhere else, right? Well, I mean, it doesn't actually mean that because, like this, like you said, this was one of their best results, and they still only got uh, thirty points less than the Conservatives did in the last elections. So, you know, unless it's like down to the wire, nine vote difference, whatever, like the actual likelihood when it all settles out into the next election is that the People's Party's not going to be competitive anywhere, even if they have a good by-election, and uh, the Conservatives need to play for the uh, Southern Ontario vote more than they do, more than they need to shore up their vote in uh, the rural prairie parts of the country where, yeah, maybe they lose 10 points to the uh, PPC, but whatever, they have 70 of those to give away. I guess, yeah, you, I think you're half right there, but I think I missed the mark. It's that, yeah, the PPC will do better in the prairies, but it's if they're getting 5 to 10% in like southeastern Ontario seats that are otherwise conservative, liberal, two-way races, those are the seats where if the PPC is just strong enough, they might peel just enough votes off that makes that path to a plurality, let alone a majority for Polyev, that much farther. And so a resurgent or any signs of life to even, you know, the fringe kind of voter out there is bad news for them. Like they need to consolidate those votes to have a chance at victory, unless they're going to try and inspire people to stop voting for Trudeau at this point, which I don't know. I feel like if you're voting liberal at this point, you're ride or die red. I mean, you gotta be, it feels like. Uh, And the final constituency up for a by-election of the four, because I can't count, is also in Manitoba. This is Winnipeg South Centre. Jim Carr died recently to multiple myeloma, a blood cancer, tragically. He had been a long-time MP and pretty prominent for Winnipeg South Centre. He 
the writing has been conservative in the past, but he most recently uh, held it. Uh, the Main Street poll has the Liberals at 49%, the Conservatives at 29%, NDP 16 uh, I put too many numbers in here. 2% for the People's Party and the Greens and just 1% for others. Notably, the Liberals are running Ben Carr, who is the son of Jim Carr, uh, just fueling the way they, dynasties... They do love their political dynasties, don't they? Yep. I mean, they all, all the parties do it. Even the NDP does it at times. Um, what's most fascinating, perhaps, about Winnipeg South Centre is that it seems like it's going to set a record. We can't, I don't know this for sure, for the longest ballot in Canadian history as 48 people are running in this by-election. Uh, 40. You mean longest federal ballot? Yes. the Vancouver Municipal one, and I believe the current Toronto Mayor one uh, swamped these. Yeah. Um, 42 of the people running are all members of the longest ballot group. Uh, many of these candidates don't live in Winnipeg, maybe, and maybe not even in Manitoba, but they have all decided to work together through a common financial agent who did the brutal work of opening bank accounts for each of these uh, paper candidates because they want to point out how dumb and ridiculous First Past the Post is, and they are advocating for electoral reform. Uh, among them is Sebastian Co-Rhino, the leader of the Rhinoceros Party. So I don't know who you choose if you're a electoral reform advocate of the 42 names who are running there. But, you know, uh, poor staff had to learn how to use larger ballots and people are just generally annoyed. Is the feeling. Yeah, like I think that's really didn't uh, do much to change it has you have what, like a couple percentage as a protest vote? You know, maybe someone will chuckle at the name Co-Rhino and throw a few votes his way and whatnot. But, you know, at the end of the day, you're going to have the Liberals, Conservatives, and the NDP divvying up the vast, vast majority of the vote. And, you know, you're not going to have one of these cases where someone wins with 10% because it just got spread out all over the place. You're going to have, you know, 3% divvied up among all of these candidates and then the liberal or the conservative with something probably in the range of high 30s low or high 30s to 50 and that'll be that it, it doesn't matter scott right this is a stunt the point of a stunt is to get a headline in the news and they got that uh and it but like the stunt should you know ideally at least convey the message and it's not conveying the message is my point well it's in the news saying uh right in the by byline that they're trying to protest for electoral reform so it's, yeah, it's an expensive, like, you, difficult you do way to do you could, that. But. Yeah. You can do stunts where, like, the stunt itself tells you about the problem, and you can do stunts where, like, it's just a, hey, look at me. Oh, and by the way, I have this other thing right here. And it's more of the latter category. Uh, notably, this is, like, the third time they've tried this approach of getting the longest ballot they can. Uh, and It shockingly hasn't uh, changed no, the system um, yet, huh? This one seems the most... I'm not going to say effective, but it is the largest. The previous one had like 20 and then uh, 40 in a previous election. But as you note, with over 100 people running for mayor of Toronto, uh, you, you'd think, or the number of people who ran in 2018 in Vancouver, or even in 2022 in Vancouver, um, you'd think that would prompt some soul searching on electoral reform. But here we are. From resignations triggering by-elections to resignations in our highest 
most prestigious institutions. We're down, we're officially down one Supreme Court justice. Uh, he's been off the bench for a little while pending an investigation, but now he has officially resigned. Justice Russell Brown is no longer uh, on the Supreme Court of Canada and now can begin his illustrious career consulting on uh, inquiries, reports, and giving opinions for uh, special rapporteurs and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, I guess he has not reached the level of eminence required to do that and uh, gets to be one of these uh, break glass in case of legitimacy emergencies that uh, so many Supreme Court justices seem to end up uh, being in that role. Uh, so, yeah, this follows uh, a complaint being brought against him to the uh, judicial what is that actually committee name? Canadian Judicial Council. Yeah, brought uh, to the Canadian Judicial Council, the uh, kind of the oversight body for judges, uh, related to an alleged incident at um, some resort in Arizona. Brown disputes that his lawyer put out a statement, basically saying, "Yeah, we expected that this wouldn't have, this wouldn't go anywhere. Uh, we have video evidence back in our side." Um, on that, but uh, but nevertheless, Brown's decided that uh, the process is going to be too long and drawn out and leave the uh, court without a justice and decided to just step down rather than go through that process, at least per the uh, statement he put out earlier this it's, week. It's so convenient that by resigning the public process to judge the merits of these allegations is over. Yeah, there may be an element of self-servingness in that, for sure. Um, like, it's a very notable resignation because this is the first time we've had a Supreme Court justice just, like, step down for, like, a misconduct claim, as far as anyone could tell. And so, it's quite notable for that. It's also notable that well our judges are not partisan in any stretch of the sense of the way that the American courts is um, he was more on the defiant side or the more likely to dissent. I would say he's the second most likely dissent uh, after. Kote. Yeah. Like I think he brought a lot of value to the court for that reason. Uh, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see where, what his replacements like. And I mean, I hope they find someone kind of in that vein because Honestly, I was not a fan of kind of all of these like nine nothing opinions on like pretty contentious stuff. Like, ah, my view is if it, if something reaches the Supreme Court, like it should be uh, one of these like there could go either way. It's a tough call. That's why we need nine of us to really hash it out, sort of things. And having justices that like fill that role is i think important and something that the court had didn't always have in the mclaughlin era i mean the convenience of that is when you have one ruling come out of the supreme court it's the law is easier to interpret than when you have very split decisions I mean, but you know it's a legal it, as long as it's like a majority ruling it's never ambiguous it's when you have these like you know five different opinions and you have like 
overlaps on like some of them where you get enough like where the majority of the court agrees like those are the genuinely confusing ones where it's like okay six people say this and three people say that it's the six that's just how it is i don't know that anyone's ever been like genuinely confused by a seven to two opinion so he was a representative for western canada um he i think was officially appointed for alberta um the, the Constitution well, only the requires courts. there be two justices from Western Canada, and so he and McLaughlin were both from Alberta, although he was born in Vancouver and did his, like, initial law stuff. Is McLaughlin from BC as well? I think, I, I don't know, I'm reading Wiki and it said she was appointed from Alberta, so it may have been where they, like, last served. Um, it was expected Harper would name someone from Saskatchewan, but he opted for Brown from Alberta. Um, but this does give Justin Trudeau another chance to nominate someone from Western Canada. So I guess I don't know the bench. I thought maybe he was from BC, but I guess, or appointed from BC. But, you know, this this is quite a few justices that will have been appointed by uh, Trudeau, which is uh, quite the accomplishment. For I mean, it's not bad on Trump. I mean, like, by the time Harper had... Uh... Left, so he'd appointed a majority of the court at that point. Um, it's just pretty common when a prime minister has been around this long. Oh, Trudeau's already appointed Probably Brown five people. Trudeau uh, has already appointed uh, five people to the court. Right. I mean, notably, Brown was still pretty young, so he, he could have served out quite a few more years on that. Um, yeah, we'll just uh, have to see who, who Trudeau appoints. Uh, so McLaughlin... Uh, went to University of Alberta and first was called to the bar in Alberta and then BC a few years later. So served in uh, both positions, and but she was Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of BC. Well, speaking of resignations, uh, the other big resignation of the past week happened right after we recorded our episode last Thursday evening on Friday morning. In total disrespect of our schedule, uh, David Johnson. Yeah, I'm going to say, if this guy had uh, was really as, you know, beyond reproach as everyone said he was, like, he really wouldn't should not have put it out after we'd finished recording, but before... Yeah, Friday morning, J David Johnston releases the letter that says, you know what, things have gotten way too partisan that I can't effectively do my job, so I quit. And he is no longer the special rapporteur on foreign interference. This kind of feels like something everybody thought was inevitable like weeks ago, and he, he was the fat last one to finally clue into that. I mean, good that he finally did. It was getting on almost ridiculous at that point. Like, shouldn't have taken the job in the first place. It definitely should not have recommended he carry on with more uh, interviews and reports. Maybe, maybe he got some good advice. I was listening to the Canada Land Shortcuts today, and they reminded me that there was another headline that David Johnston had brought Navigator on as uh, communications advisors. Um, yeah, I think we talked about that last week. And yeah, maybe got uh, his money's well, worth off. He, they dropped him when it came out that Navigator was also representing Han Dong, the MP, he, who's out, the independent MP who's out of the Liberal Caucus. Um, that That's a borderline conflict. It's more than a borderline conflict. Like, you can't... It, you really should be providing like communication advice to one person and to the another person who that person is then investigating. Just 
It's bad. It's a hey, bad look. Hey, David Johnson uh, didn't talk to Hand Tonk in his investigation. Also part of the problem. <laughs> this left a big question hanging as to what happens now from the federal government, and we still don't have any additional answers. David Johnson didn't leave going, and now you should do a public inquiry. He kind of left just going, fuck it. No, he explicitly said, don't do a public inquiry. But I'm also around if, you know, you, you need anything. Uh, Dominic LeBlanc has now said on behalf of the government that they've never ruled out a public inquiry, uh, and they're keeping all options on the table. Which is a lie. Like, they explicitly ruled one out after the Johnson report said don't do a public inquiry. But I guess they're doing a soft walk back on that one. Yeah, I mean... So yeah, we're now in middle of June, kind of doing the thing everybody more or less thought was inevitable in March. I think they really, the liberals really just want to go to barbecues and forget about this for a few months. So we'll see if they get that chance, if they can hold off a couple more weeks. Maybe nothing will happen all summer. Yeah, I don't know. All it takes is like one more story um, of some information that gets passed to uh, Fife and Chase and we're right back at it. It's a, it's a high risk bet doing that. Anyway, um, yeah, David Johnson just like, does not come out of this looking good. Like, he kind of went in with this as, you know, former GG person of, like, you know, impeccable reputation and, and like, grand stature and kind of just comes out of it looking beaten up and defeated. Like, was not a good decision on his part to take the, the job or, I guess, then be oblivious to the problems that people are raising during that. I, I hope the money was worth it. Maybe, but, like... He does not need like the no, governor general doesn't is, need the money, and like he's also not generally a public figure most of the time these days anyway. So yeah, it was just an awkward bit of time on his CV. It probably won't uh, come up when he's applying for jobs in the future. I mean, he's eighty something. Like he's probably just going to enjoy retirement. Good plan. <laughs> yes, that should have been the plan from day one. <laughs> Memo to Russell Brown: Enjoy retirement. Don't don't harass women as well. Allegedly. Uh, and uh, speaking of harassment... Oh, Brad, oh, Brad's only 57. He, actually, he may actually be applying for another job at some point. Uh, speaking of harassment, the uh, RCMP have testified before the uh, Commons Committee that they are now opening, in, or they have now opened an investigation into attempts to target and intimidate Michael Chong and his family. Uh, this follows the RCMP learning that that happened via the news like we all did cops they're just like us yeah everyone seems to be learning that whether it's uh public safety ministers or or just regular folks like you and me or apparently the rcmp so the back just yeah, broke so the both back and forth in the committee going from the cbc reporting here it either highlights the failures in communications that johnston's report went over and other uh news has covered over and over again on all of these issues, or it really gets down to the fact that CSIS didn't take this as seriously. And, you know, it highlights in the story that not every bit of news that CSIS gets goes to the RCMP because it's not necessarily actionable or for the police to action. You know, an example might be something that there's either not strong enough evidence to act on in, you know, in a criminal proceeding or where taking such actions could compromise sources national security is hard. The problem is we don't have good answers to any of this because we don't have a public inquiry. Yeah. 
And like at least this one, I could I could see the case why why it ought to go to the RCMP. Like sure, the intelligence by itself is not enough to convict someone on, but you know that's why you open investigations and go from there. And hey, MPs potentially being threatened ought to be one of those things that you know at least triggers a look. So not great that it uh, w- once again. Information is not being shared in the way it should be. You know who else isn't sharing information? Marco Mendicino's yeah, office? The political staff of our federal minister of public safety isn't getting briefed on files that might explode on his desk. Well, apparently they're getting briefed, just not bothering to tell the minister. Uh, so this all relates to the uh, Paul Bernardo transfer from a high security prison to a medium security prison that has. Uh, understandably uh caused some uh outrage and somehow the government has managed to take what ought to be in a very simple comms exercise and turn it into yet another who knew what when uh catastrophe that is now a multi-day news story like the literal headline staff knew months before minister did which is either like they didn't know it was likely to be like, maybe they didn't know the name Paul Bernardo. Um, this was a late 1980s serial rapist and murderer and who went through a very public trial. Like, yeah, one of the more most well-known Canadian serial killers. It's the sort of thing that, yeah, a lot of the staff are probably going to be, uh, you know, younger than you and I, and we were too young to really remember that. But also, part of the job is just knowing kind of what are the potential... Um, you know, third rails, lightning rods, whatever metaphor you want to use here. And it's not good if they don't know what sort of stuff they need to be on the lookout for. Like, s- someone yeah, failed here. And this is, this is like a, a weird one, because I can see in a way that it's like, there's nothing the minister could probably do. Like, there's soft power, but like, he can't, we don't want... I believe he does also have the ability to like, have them re-review Yeah, and I think decision. he's done that, but now. Yeah. Um... But, like, there is a certain element of, like, the justice system should be independent of political interference and saying the minister of public safety should do this or that with individual prisoners is not consistent with, a you know, a system based on the rule of law. But in terms of doing your job as a politician, you need to know what kind of things are you going to be asked about at press conferences. Yeah, and... um so you can come up with a coherent answer as to why, you know, your hands are tied or what actions you can do based on your powers. And so your political staff, not even just like people in the Department of Correction Service Canada, but actual like the people who are there to advise him didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, also apparently the uh, PMO got alerted around the same time, but nobody bothered telling Trudeau either, which also seems sketchy. On that, like, I get there's probably, like, more that uh, filters through the PMO compared to public safety. And still, like, this is a potential problem. Like, no, nobody at the political level actually knowing seems, like, weird. And another sign things are kind of broken within this government. Mendicino is saying he's taken corrective actions internally to make sure this doesn't happen again. But, like, we won't, you won't know the details of until someone Apple-wise, like, where was the memo that said, hey, remind me or let me know the next time they move Bernardo uh, or equivalent. But like if it merits something yeah, more like, than that. But, you know, at the same time, it doesn't quite merit the 
calls from the conservatives, I feel like, where they want him to resign over this. Like, there is an issue with ministerial responsibility, but... Yeah, so, like, I, I... Yeah. Mendicino has just, like, not done a good job as a minister and, like, should probably be demoted. Um, and, like, I think that opposition is, you know, picking on a weak minister because they see an opening and, uh, you know, trying to get ahead out of this. At the same time, like, this is someone who, like, clearly is not running their office well and the the ministry that uh, reports them and like ultimately it is his responsibility and if that's not something that has happened like there ought to be some level of consequences and accountability for that it the other weird thing is like when this first broke and it was just and it looked like everybody was caught off guard um you know uh staff minister and all he actually had a pre like decent response. It's like one of the actually like few decent uh, issues management things that have come out of this government in months. Um, and if like there hadn't been this like giant mess of a thing happening behind the scenes, it probably would have actually gone in the wind column. So yeah, we're weird kerfuffle there when we're talking office politics you know who would do a great episode on this is the boys in short pants if they would ever get their podcast back on the air yes they really should i don't even know if they oh, one of them worked in a form in a uh, public safety minister's office they would have way more insight into uh this stuff go, go tweet at them listeners tell them to talk about this yes um but yeah like i mostly want to talk about this just because it's uh interesting to me as kind of like another data point in things aren't working in the liberal government in like very fundamental ways and they keep getting caught out on the same type of problems and nobody really seems to be fixing them and i don't know th this has all the hallmarks of a government that is just exhausted and like too tired to either run things effectively or probably run a winning campaign maybe in a years. the details were included in a binder that mendicino was given 15 minutes to look at in a secure room that he could not take notes on and so he just like missed it Nah, i i think it's more likely he uh didn't have a password to the email it was sent on like it, it's actually kind of ridiculous that at this point the opposition party can just claim they'll they will read all of their briefing notes and de facto be a better government oh uh, finally uh one new bill came from the federal government today at least uh one prominent one that has been promised for a while and uh western premiers who just won re-election have threatened like to go nuclear over is the sustainable jobs act this is the just transition bill that the ndp included as part of their supply and confidence agreement this is a bill that, you know, in theory helps determine how we will get all the people working in the oil industry and polluting industries and jobs into new jobs that are just as good or better. Something that, you know, a lot of people have highlighted there are needs to be plans for this. And the government has released some plans and this codifies them into law in many ways, which makes it a little bit harder to take apart in the future if a different government had a different approach although repealing an act isn't that hard it has been done before specifically the sustainable jobs act uh, will establish a council to advise government on how to encourage job creation which is you know job creation 
another level of bureaucracy. Uh, there will be a sustainable jobs secretariat to ensure coherent and consistent policy and publish action plans every five years. Like it's good stuff at the base level. It's stuff they could have done seven years ago as like, we need a plan. We need to, you know, set in place the steps and things we need to get a good plan to manage the transition that we have to go through. Uh, this feels a little late. And I have no like strong critique of it other than it's kind of more showy than it is substantive, but I guess. Um, yeah, it doesn't seem to have a huge amount there, at least in the reporting on it. I've yeah, there's a little itself. bit like it gets tied into some of the tax credits that they've announced in recent budgets. And that includes like a massive $80 billion clean tech tax credit. So some of that will tie in like it. Maybe it's best to just see this as one piece of the puzzle that we need in place to uh transition to a cleaner economy yeah i mean hey they rebranded it from the uh just transition so at least there's you know minor signs of life and political competency in ottawa i don't think that's gonna make a difference if you're against the just transition are but, you, you know, it's not a huge thing jobs? but like it like, it's not taking fair. a needless l which at this point qualifies as a win for the liberals what, do you think just transition is politically toxic in parts but of the country like it is the pool of voters who are open to voting liberal are going to be like oh well now they're not doing the just transition so i'm more open to them i think it's more beneficial in just like turning down the temperature a little bit on kind of like the regional fractures it, it's not going to do a huge amount but like just not having that like ratchet up another degree by introducing branded just transition legislation probably just on the margins helpful even if it's not like electorally significant it's probably just like good to just not further uh be pretty intense regionalism that's already at play don't pick a war with daniel smith right after she won a majority government i'm not even sure that's it it's you know what it's one of those things where it's the difference between like governing and campaigning and i think this this is more like one of those like wisdoms of governing thing than necessarily like trying to you know, maximize your electoral returns. Uh, the yeah. So curious to see what else we can get out of this supply and confidence agreement, uh, and if it can manage to hold together. Seems like the Liberals are ticking off everything the NDP has asked for, even if it sometimes is a little bit kicking and screaming or a little bit slower. Uh, but maybe it's just because they're not reading their memos and uh, legislating doing the work of governing hey at least with this there will now be another report that they probably won't get around to reading and that has been playcoast find links to everything we talked about at playcoast.ca support the show and get access to our slack channel at patreon.com slash playcoast our intro music credit is beautiful british columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. playcoast is a production of legend boot media and editing services are provided by chly 101.7 fm in nanaimo Thanks for listening. Thank you.